As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have an old friend, a dear friend, and a beloved teacher in this community, a leader. Justin Michael Williams is with us today. Welcome, Justin. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here with you, Elena. Dang it, brother. I <laughs> I am so proud of you. We share a publisher in Sounds True. Your book, Stay Woke, is a meditation guide, quote, for the rest of us. This is one of my most eagerly anticipated interviews of this year, 2020. You are an author, you are a speaker, you are a top 20 recording artist using music and meditation to wake up the world. By working at the intersection of music, mindfulness, and social justice, you have become a pioneering voice for diversity and inclusion and wellness. You have been featured by Billboard, Yoga Journal. You've shared the stage with Dr. Chopra, one of my favorite humans. You've presented at events such as Wanderlust and South by Southwest. Your new book is called Stay Woke, and I can't wait to talk about the title with you. It gives people of all genders, identities, colors, religions, ages, economic backgrounds, gives us all the tools to stop wasting time, overcome self-doubt, and wake up to the lives we were really born to live. That's it. Hallelujah. <laughs> Justin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We met, we met, uh, what? I think it was five or six years ago, at least. Yeah. It feels like more than that, but I, maybe it was like 2012 or 13 or something like that. Yeah. I don't it know. It feels like a lot longer than that, my friend. Um, I, I want to open up our conversation by reading a passage from your book. It's a great example of your ability to combine all of the understandings that you've gained and express them in a super relevant way. Um, I'm looking at page 33 of Stay Woke. Intention setting is the act of focusing your reticular activating system on that which you decide is important. If you don't decide what's important, your brain will go into random selection and make choices based upon your mood, your emotional state, your energy levels, which can fluctuate at any given moment. Without setting an intention, your brain operates in default mode, which is especially dangerous for those of us who have grown up without privilege, because often those repetitive default settings are what cause us to internalize oppression and sabotage ourselves over and over again. This is, I feel, encapsulates the book beautifully. Mm. Thank you. And there's so much good information in this book. I can barely stand it. It's it's thick and it's full and it's it's everything from how to sit to how to see. I can't even wrap my arms really around the scope of the information and how long it must have taken you to write it. But my question is this, growing up as you did, 
How have you applied this act of focusing your reticular activating system, that part of your brain that actually chooses and prioritizes? How have you applied this to create this project? Mm, mm, thank you. No, I mean, gosh, Lena, it's so amazing to be here with you in this context and, and both of us with books and all these things happening right now. And I pinch myself sometimes because, you know, I grew up in a home literally with gunshot holes on the outside of my house and, you know, a lot of domestic violence and, and abuse. And, and there's a lot of love in my family too. And my parents did so good considering the circumstances that we were in and we've become very close now. But when I look at where I'm sitting in my life right now and the things that I've had the blessing and the gift to be able to do and the stages that I've been able to be on, sometimes it seems like a, a miracle. And then I remember that this is not a miracle. Yes, there's been spirit and divine guiding me the entire way. But the reason I've been able to hold that connection and have these things, quote unquote, happen is because I've had this system and this tool that I feel so grateful to have learned at such a young age, you know, the yoga and spiritual and wellness and kind of, I guess, self-help junkie, you know, community really ra raised me. Um, you know, I moved to Los Angeles from my hometown to go to college when I was 18 at UCLA. And I, I immediately went from quite literally like growing up in the hood to go, having a full ride scholarship to go to UCLA, living in one of the nicest areas of Los Angeles with extra money all of a sudden because I had a scholarship. And like I had the blessing and the opportunity to be able to be immersed in these communities. And I just feel so grateful. Like the first, first, first book, this is literally what happened. I went into Barnes and Nobles that was down on Westwood Boulevard in Los Angeles. And I walked in to the self-help section because I had this feeling like I had did all the things that everybody told me to do. I got this scholarship. I was getting good grades. I was living in this neighborhood. I did everything that everybody told me to do. But somehow inside, I still felt like shit. Like it, none of it, none of the external things, it worked. It still felt like I was living in that house with gunshot holes. So I walked to the self-help section of that Barnes and Nobles and I closed my eyes and I said, just, just show me what book I need to read. And the first book, first, first, first book that I grabbed was A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle when I was 18. And that opened everything. It shifted my whole life in that moment. And that's how this all started. The point that you've just made, first of all, love that you're... Spidey senses founded that guy right away. Right. But, but the point that you've just made, I think, is the crux of this entire discussion. There will be other points made, but I think this is the crux, which is know, my listener, know that you are embedded with a certain set of circumstances, beliefs, and they are limiting. Yeah. And until you choose to look beyond what seems fixed, in terms of your belief system, you will not experience the change that you're seeking, even though you know it's coming. And even though you know what exactly it should look like, almost exactly, you won't experience it until you let go of the limiting beliefs. And that is what this book did for you. I mean, at yeah. least initially. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think, like you said, like we all we all close our eyes and we can see this life we haven't started living yet. You know, we can see these people that we know we were put on this earth to be, we, we actually know and we can feel that we have 
that energy inside of us to become that, like the possibility and the potentiality is there. And so many of us have things covering it or society because we say we're too fat or we're too old or we're too ugly or we waited too long or I should have done that when I was younger or whatever. And we stop ourselves from, from doing and being, really it's about being, you know, who we were put on this earth to be. And my intention with this book, although it's a meditation book, is really, I, I tell people like, I don't, I don't really care about meditation, to really, to be honest. Like I only teach meditation and I only wrote a book about meditation because it is the practice, hands down, that is, and I've done everything, okay? I've done the ayahuasca and it's therapy and shadow work and this and that, and that. I've done everything. And yeah, all those things helped. But the thing that has really taken me on the express elevator towards my dreams day to day in my everyday life and helped me integrate everything else that I've done is this meditation practice. And it's helped me step forward into a life that I and other people have told me was impossible. And, and I have the blessing of being able to live it. And I want other people to step into those impossible dreams as well. I just want you to keep talking. <laughs> oh my God. You just sound so good. I was watching the video on your Instagram that actually describes uh, in such eloquent terms the meaning of woke and how it's not some fad. It's not like bay or fleek. It's something that was derived from ancient times from your ancestors. Yeah. I need to talk about this now. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Woke, right? So we hear this word because like people be like hashtag woke or like namaste woke or you know woke af or whatever and it's been so help us yeah you know and it's fine you know it's been it's been so overused though and so misappropriated and i think what's happened is people have gotten exhausted about it and i'll be totally honest with you elena like i had the idea the idea for the title came to me gosh like through some series of conversations with a woman named Zena who I was who I was working with a good friend of mine and it was a couple of years ago and so woke wasn't like so like so dramatically used and misappropriated at that point and then when we were close to pub or to finishing the book I was like you guys I think we have to change the title I literally said that I was like NPR I think had put out an article called why woke is dead and like it I was just like you guys we cannot do this and then I le like spirit was just holding me on to it. Like I couldn't let it go. And so I leaned in closer to it. And I actually was surprised because I didn't know this. I just went deep into it. I said, what is this word? Like, where does this really come from? And where it comes from is in the early, early days of the civil rights movement. In It started on the East Coast. It was a word like, hey, stay woke, like you better be woke. That was really used specifically in the black community to when like they were putting crack cocaine and stuff like this in the communities and planting it on people and doing all this stuff like, hey, you better pay attention to what's going on around you. Don't be fooled by the system. Don't be blind to the system. Don't go to sleep because that's how you get caught up. And so this word woke has actually been around for like 60, 70 years almost, you know? And it's not a word that we can throw away. And if you're black or if you're gay or if you're trans or if you're poor, if you're marginalized or if you're a woman who's had enough or a sexual assault survivor, if you're anybody, native, if you're somebody who's had to face an uphill battle just to enjoy the freedom that really is your birthright, like what I say in the book is like, you better stay woke. We can't lose this word. This word actually means something that we we don't have another word to replace it with. It, it doesn't you know, there's no like, oh, woke means equals this. It, it actually has a yeah. historical context, you know, so we need it. 
it's not quite awake. No. Because it's a past tense. It's like a it's like the fullest version of awake. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when when I think about the meaning with the book, you know, awakened and awake and woke and like stay woke, all of it together, it really encompasses this idea of a meditation practice that goes kind of beyond time and space. And it's like, is it a noun? I mean, is it an adjective? Is it a verb? You know, it's all of it. And it it encompasses all of it to be a state of being that we are allowed to anchor into. I feel like now with the way that you're you're, you're specifically including and adding this deep conscious level of diversity to the practices that you're offering in this book on page 46 you have the guided practice number one how to redefine your life no matter what you've been through can you turn to that page and walk us through your intention here yeah so i'm so glad you you're the first person who's open to this page and i'm so glad because i started with this as the first guided practice for a very specific reason you know, we talked about the the nerdy science, which I can geek out on, even though I love a good woo, like love the woo woo, but the science uh, I geek out on as well. And we talked about that reticular activating system and the being the part of your brain that helps you notice things and the part of your brain that actually helps start to create the reality that you see. And so one of the things that has to happen, no matter what we've been through, my intention in writing this book is not just to teach people how to meditate but to teach them to meditate so that they can take action and have awareness, have enough awareness that inspires them to take action towards what they really believe in for their lives, for their families, for their communities, and for the planet. And so the very first practice uses first a meditation to help anchor you into your heart so then you can start writing a vision for your life. And this vision covers several different life zones. It covers your work and your career, and it covers your relationships, and your well-being, and your passions, and your money. And it helps us create a vision. And I know a lot of people have written visions, and they've done vision boards and all this kind of stuff before, but here's the deal. When we're just sitting down and going, I'm going to write my vision, I'm going to cut out these magazine papers. The reason why oftentimes that doesn't work is because it's coming from our heads and not from our hearts. And so we end up creating our visions based on what we think other people expect us to do or what we should do or what our ego is telling us to do. And so the way that I use meditation throughout this entire book is to pull people into the center of their heart and then help create the vision that flowers from there because that's where you really create a unique and authentic life. That's where you really live your purpose. And that's where you start to not base your life comparing yourself to other people but from a deep rooted wisdom that is inside of you and connected to something greater. Right. And first of all, the center of the heart is such a beautiful focus. What a nice way to explain it to folks who've never meditated before. You know, I'm just going to pull you into the center of your heart. It's like, wow, what's that place? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of people, Elena, like say, you know, oh, you have all the answers within and we do. But I feel like nobody ever tells us how the hell to get within. <laughs> like, okay, well, how do, where do I look? Right. Like, okay, it's inside of me, where? And so the my intention is to show people where that intuitive power is, where that force is. And then the book is very, like you're holding it in front of you when people have it. It's very workbook style. Like, you know, then there's a bunch of blank pages and you get space to write and dream and draw and explore. And, and I just wanted people to have that opportunity to do that here. I like how substantial the book is actually. Thank you. 
Um, I'm now on page 56. You get what you are, not what mm-hmm. you want. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. You get what you are, not what you want. Shit. That's it. But like, all right, cool. See you, Justin. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> We're done now. Um, I just wanted to say that out loud. If you have the book, when you have the book in your hand, my sweet listener, go to page 56 and just land there for a few minutes. Um, your whole focus, that beautiful video that I saw, there was a point where, and I don't know if I'm seeing it in the video or if I see it in the book, but there's, there's some aspect of it where we're ending self-sabotage for good. Yeah. It ties into my first question, which is stop seeing the limiting set of circumstances with which you were raised and start to see who you are now and what you're projecting and bringing now. Talk to my listener about how you ended self-sabotage like what was the what's the trajectory there were probably hundreds of little light points along the way but the trajectory from picking up that book to saying okay i'm gonna go get a book deal right now oh my god okay well so when i talk about self-sabotage there you know there's a few different ways in the book that we go through toxic habits toxic people toxic thoughts and toxic beliefs and we all have so many of them but i think you know toxic thoughts and toxic habits are two that really have plagued me, you know, for a while. And for me, you know, growing up the way that I did and then getting to college. So for context, like when I went to go pick up that first book, Eckhart Tolle's book and, and having that moment of desperation, you know, here I was and I was hiding in the closet as a kid. And now I was in LA and I was out. I'm growing up poor and now I'm in LA and I have money. You know, I'm growing up in the hood and now I'm living in this like beautiful neighborhood in Westwood and nothing seems to be working. I'm still feeling like shit inside. And then what was happening was all the trauma that I had was coming up to the surface and it was starting to manifest in my life. So I started, you know, doing drugs. I had an eating disorder. So I'm like almost six feet, I'm 5'11", but I'm six feet tall with my curls (laughs) <laughs> and and <laughs> my hair makes me six feet tall. And so, Baby. you know, I, I'm about six feet tall and I weigh 160 pounds now. And I'm a slim guy. And at my lowest point in college, I was the same height and I weighed 115. What, uh, sorry to ask this, but I always need to know, what drugs were you doing? Oh, goodness. Okay. So, I mean, I was doing a lot of Adderall. Oh. <laughs> I was for like plenty of that. Um, I was doing Coke. I was smoking weed. I was doing mushrooms. I was, I mean, I was, I was doing it. I was drinking a ton, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and um, doing MDMA. I mean, then ecstasy, I don't think I even knew. And, and, you know, I think there are some, subs, some situations where medicine can be healing. And, but in that, at that moment in my life, I was not using it in that way, you know? And, um, when people start telling me they have these things holding them back, like I get it. I was not in this quote unquote teacher position. Like I've been on this, on this road and, you know, I had to really look at the ways in which I was becoming my own poison, the ways in which I was holding myself back. And I could try to blame it on what happened to me. I could try to blame it on the situations that had been happening in my life. And yes, those traumas have to be healed and dealt with and tenderly held. But I was also 
trying to read these self-help books and then at the same time doing all this stuff that was completely out of alignment with who I wanted to be. And that's where the quote that you started with really comes from. It's like, you don't get what you want, you get what you are. And so I had to look at the ways in my life in which I was out of alignment with who I wanted to become. And it, it continues even now. So like one of the one of the things that I had to do I, that I felt really called to do even for this book, which has been a huge deal for me, you know, one of my mentors, Brenda, she said to me when 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 I was just getting started writing, this was August 29th of full moon, 2018. I'll never forget this day. I was sitting with Brenda and she's doing a tarot reading for me. And she said, Justin, you know, you've spent a lot of time over the last years really clearing yourself of your vices and your habits to make yourself clear and available to spirit. You know, I've been sober for a few years and, and all of that. And she said, but you're skipping your biggest toxic habit of all. And I'm like, what? And she goes, boys and sex. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like literally looking at her like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't have caffeine. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink. Like, what about sex? But I knew she was right. And it's not because I thought like sex was bad. Sex is amazing. It's, you know, connection and, and creation and, and all of the amazing divine things that it is. But growing up the way that I did, I was, I had started using sex as this form of validation as a way to get people to like me, as a way to keep people close. And knowing that who I wanted to become and the energy that it would take for me to write this book would require my full creative energy. And, you know, sex and creative energy being in the same Eros kind of wheelhouse. And so she just said, you're going to need all of this energy for this book. And so you have to understand, like at this point, I'm like a 30 something, 30 year old gay black dude living in Hollywood, like giving up sex was kind of like a big deal. Right. And I'm just like, no, but it's, it has been still now it's 16 months in and I've been, I've been completely celibate and it's, I'm not going to be that forever. And it's changed my life. And what I want to say to people is this, is nothing is inherently toxic. The way that we know something is toxic or that we're out of alignment is we have to start with, and this is why I start with this in the book, what is the vision for your life? If you have the vision for your life, then you get to look at every habit that you're engaged with and you get to say, is this taking me closer towards my vision and who I want to become or is it taking me further away? And there's no in the middle. Every choice we make, every action we move on is taking us further from our vision or closer to it. And so I had to ask that question and we all get to ask that question. And it makes us look at things differently in our lives, like watching TV or drinking coffee or being on hookup apps and doing whatever. Who do you want to become? And is what you're doing in your life in alignment with that or not? And it could be a sobering reality to face, but when you get in alignment, everything starts to shift. I'm so glad I stayed quiet during that because what you just said was profound and is still resonating. The next point that I wanted to go to is how to dismantle your toxic beliefs because I think prior to exactly the point that you've just made, we have got to dismantle things that we think are true and ways of believing and seeing, and I, I'm sorry to keep sticking on this, but I do think for my listener, it's really important that we have some clear instruction. Mm -hmm. To dismantle them, you actually have on page 72, you have a whole um, worksheet, uh, toxic thoughts, guided practice number four, and then the following page 72, toxic thought, where did it originate? In what area of your life do you need additional healing, support, or growth? 
And then what's an action I can take to prove this toxic thought wrong? It's very thorough, Justin. Like as your mother, I am so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. I know Barbara. Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Are you so proud of your boy? Um, I'm, mm. I feel like a mother to you also, and I'm so proud of you. It's just so well done. Like I, I go into this thing and I can see how well it's going to work. Thank you. Thank you. So moving on, the bios of different participants in the workshop included throughout the book so that your reader can experience the book almost like they're in an interactive workshop, I feel is brilliant. Thank you. It's genius. What what moved you to create it like that? Um, Elena, I'm loving your questions, by the way. These are things that I've like wished people would ask me. <laughs> You're asking all of them. So, um, so I went through, when I was writing the book, I my intention was, I want this to feel like you are, I want this to feel like you're sitting in a room with me and a few other people, and we're going through a workshop together and teaching you how to meditate. I want it to be conversational and fun. And and one of the reasons why I put these four characters in that people are going through, and, and when I first did it, I was a little nervous, actually, because I was like, okay, this is either going to be really cheesy or it's going to really work. And when I sent it to my editor, they were like, this really works. And the reason why I did this, I have these these four characters, and you go through the the book with them so that you can see how meditation is applying to these different people's lives and the different struggles that they're going through. And this really helps. And I find when people are actually, you know, in workshops with me, what's most effective is like, yes, I'm teaching you, but what's most effective is hearing from other people in the group. And you're like, oh yeah, wow. Like that really makes a lot of sense. And so I have, you know, in in the book, I have Amber, who's like a busy mom on the go. And I have David, who's a who's a creative, who's been trying to bring his creative passions and projects to life. And then Lisa, who is kind of like <laughs> the the joke, in, internal joke, where she was like the woke white woman. Like she, <laughs> that was what we called her. Like she, she's like recognizing privilege and, you know, she's doing Layla Saad's like white supremacy workbook. And, and she's realizing that how she's grown up and she wants to make an impact. So what does she do? And you know, we have Jordan, who's like the skeptic, and he's somebody who's like, okay, I don't believe in all this woo-woo shit, like whatever. So, and then you have you, and you have me, and and we're going through it together as a journey, and it, it feels really fun, and and like you're having experience building a relationship with people as you're going through it. That's beautiful, and it's it feels very uh, connective for the reader, which I really appreciated. Um, beginning of December of 2019. So we're now in January 2020, mm-hmm. pardon. Beginning of December of last year, you spent a day working with 56 women from Southside Chicago who lost their kids to gun violence. Yeah. Um, teach my listener what you learned from that day and anything else you feel called to to share from that day. My gosh. I mean, I'm so glad you asked about this because this this moment was quite honestly, I would say probably one of the most important and impactful teaching experiences that I've really ever had. When I anchor into my heart and and feel the ability to have like an impact somewhere, this was something that I would have never expected could have gone so deep. And I think one of the main 
teachings that I want to share that I think everyone could take something from was in this moment where I was with these women, like I want you to really feel that and let that drop into your heart. 56 women who lost a child to gun violence. And when we're talking to these women, you know, just actually I feel like just like taking a pause for that, like to really feel that to losing their child. You know, and when we're talking to them, they're saying they've been through major heartbreaks in their lives and divorces and they've lost their parents and they've had all these other things, but they said nothing. It like the worst breakup you've ever had or your mom or your dad dying. And one of the women said, multiply that by a hundred. That's how it feels to lose your kid. Many of them had considering committing suicide and, and you know, all these different things. And so you would never imagine that in a space like that, that there would be so much joy, so much joy that these women were also able to experience at the same time. We went from deep in our practices to going into the trauma and writing and healing about the pain. But then at the end of the night, we're literally like dancing and doing the electric slide together, you know, like they were like my aunties and my grandma. And, and I think what that showed me is we really, and this is what really the practice is all about. The practice helps us have the capacity to hold it all, to hold the sometimes paradoxical things about life, to hold the shadow and the joy, to hold the sorrow and the bliss, and to recognize all of it as part of this emotional wheel without having to explain our way through it, without having to have stories around it, without having to understand why sometimes. And that was a big thing with these women. There's no understanding why, you know, there's no understanding why one of these women whose daughter, like growing up in Southside Chicago, was one of the star students and just finished winning a science fair and was out to eat after the science fair and a stray bullet hit her in the head, the one person. There's no understanding that. But what there is, is a deep understanding and resonance of the feeling that's happening inside of your own self and allowing that to come up and allowing that to pass through without demonizing it and, and holding it all. And so I think for those of us who have our traumas and, you know, I always say this is not like the trauma Olympics, you know, it's just, we all have shit. We all have our trauma. We learn through these practices to hold it all, to have space for the trauma and to let ourselves experience joy and, and all the other dynamic dimensions of the emotional wheel of life. It's a really beautiful way to share the benefit of meditation in general, and you walk your reader through what meditation means to you, how to accomplish various practices, simple breath practices, all the way into explaining that meditation isn't actually stopping your mind. Tell us what the most kind of seminal practice is that you offer in the book that comes to mind right this moment, perhaps something that you use with the, with the moms. Mm, okay. So this is, I think, if you're going to take anything from my book, this is probably one of the most important. And I think, and I think from what I'm hearing from people, one of the most unique, and I did this with the women as well. So one of the cruxes of freedom meditation, which is a style that I teach, is it really empowers us to understand that we are our own gurus. And what I mean by that, and I know that sounds like, okay, like an Instagram meme, but I really think that the point of meditation really is to realize that the guru is within you. And one of the things that I find that happens so often when we're doing different apps and doing guided meditations, which are all great, which are all great, 
But what happens sometimes is we are prescribed mantras from the outside or prescribed affirmations or practices that don't necessarily fit with our lives. And this is why sometimes we find ourselves reaching for meditation or reaching for practices, just like we would reach for like Tylenol if we had a headache or, you know, or some Tums if you had a stomach ache or something like that. Like we reach for it for prescriptive reasons versus using the practice every day and having it be a consistent rhythm with our life. And so one of the things that I guide people through is the process of creating their own mantra. And, you know, in a lot of practices and a lot of different traditions, there's, you know, this thing of, you know, you have to have some mantra and a special language that's supposed to work magic and all this. But really, the answer of what you need in your life is inside of you. And so one of the practices that I love most that people usually feel really empowered by is the practice of creating your own mantra, which is goes a little something like this. And, and you know, you can find this in the book, obviously, but the, the short version is you first have to think about it all starts with the vision for your life. And we talked about this in the beginning of the episode, Elena, you know, like the RAS and your intention. Who do you want to be? And can you imagine yourself living that life of your dreams? And then once you see that image in your mind, a very simple question you can ask is, what energy do I need to cultivate in my own life now to become that which I see in my vision? What energy is it? And for some people, that energy that they need is power. Mine that I needed when I was younger was complete authenticity. For some people, they need peace or safety or joy or trust or Beyonce, shit, you know, whatever words come to you. What energy do you need to become the person that you know you were put on this earth to be? And when we anchor into that energy through the practice, that becomes a unique mantra that becomes special to us that we can use consistently in our practice because we know it's taking us towards a bigger picture goal and not just solving, you know, oh, today I'm feeling stressed or tomorrow I'm feeling anxious or, you know, whatever it is. It can, it can be a consistent mantra that sticks with us throughout our practice for a long term. Right, right. Super practical, helpful, useful. Really good. Thank you. So I'm now looking at page 496. I'm sorry, 296 and 297 of the book. I'm super psyched to see that you lay out for your reader a 40-day list of practices to do. Can you describe how you came up with that whole plan to have the 40 days? And are all of these incorporated into the book or is this something separate? Yeah, no, so... The way the book is structured is the first half of it, um, the first, it's really only about 100 pages, is teaching you how to create your own practice, create your own mantra. And then the second half of the book is called Practices for Your Life. And it's 33 guided mini practices about things like self-love and confidence and finding your purpose and getting shit done and overcoming self-sabotage and social justice and activism and all these different practices that we can go through. And so what I created for people, because I'm somebody who, who likes structure, is a daily practice plan that kind of guides us first starting with a little bit of the things that feel a little bit more like things we're doing in our life, like how to stop obsessive thinking and being stressed about money and having trouble sleeping, like the things that are foundational to the well-being of our mind in our life. And then it guides us deeper, deeper into our relationships and then deeper, deeper into our relationship 
with the world and activism and social justice and social change and the environment and equality and and even goes into practices about like understanding our privilege and what that really means and how we can use it to give back for for every single one of us. And so the 40-day practice plan, I picked 40 days because the science, people I think will be really interested in this, the science around habit building is really sloppy and messy in the world when we look it up online. So the thing about it being like 21 days to make or break a habit is actual total bullshit. Like it is not true, is not scientifically backed whatsoever. It basically is kind of like a long game of telephone proving that if enough influential people say the same thing over and over, people will believe it. <laughs> and But the, the real science is actually much more empowering, I think. So the study that they did found out that it takes anywhere between 18 and 254 days to make or break a habit, depending on the reasons behind it, the motivations behind it, and what the habit is. So for example, drinking a glass of water a day, turning that into a habit is much easier than running a mile a day, right? And so the reason this is empowering is it can take fewer than 21 days, which is true, but also the biggest part of the research showed that if you fall off track, if you fall off track at, at all, it doesn't have any long-term effect on your habit building so long as you get back on the wagon, and here's the key, with compassion. And so if you skip a day every once in a while, as long as you don't beat yourself up over it and then stay off track longer and longer, the studies show that it doesn't have any long-term effect. And so people always ask, well, then why did I pick 40 days? I picked 40 days because really I could have picked any number of days, but 40 has so much significance in many spiritual traditions and sadhanas in the Bible, you know, 40 acres and a mule, what's, whereas what African-Americans were supposed to be given after slavery, the word 40 is used throughout history and it's something that I feel like is short enough to be a realistic, long enough to like flex your commitment muscle. And then each practice that we go through just takes us deeper and deeper into having a, a long-term mindfulness and meditation practice for our lives. Yeah. So pages 296 and 297, very compelling to me because you take your reader through 40 days of practices. It starts with the really practical things, things that we think about all the time, like obsessive overthinking and issues with money. And then it takes your reader into various practices that are in the book. And I would love to know what, I mean, it's so smart to give your people, to give your reader an actual list, a plan. Take us into this process. Yeah. And the, the 40 days is, um, it, you know, 21 days and whatever. It's all fine. Like what I really recommend to people is you know, pick a number of days that feels like it stretches you a little bit because that's where the real work happens and that's where the real change, you know, starts to happen. And I love that you brought that up, Elena, because just a huge part of, of this book is, like we talked about earlier, understanding some of the vices and some of the things that hold us back and have become so ingrained and a part of our identity that we sometimes are unwilling or unable to have the awareness to, to look at them deeply and see how they're affecting us really. And my intention with this practice is to give us that level of awareness, that level of fearless awareness to really have an honest look at our lives and say, where am I holding back? Like, and, and not just where am I holding back, but then have the book as a guide to help you see how do I overcome? You know, how do I break through? And that's, that's my real mission here. 
Yeah, I definitely found 40 days to be impactful for me when I was able to finally quit smoking. That was the, that was the sort of period of time that felt rational. And by the end of it, I felt different by the end of those 40 days. So the last question I have before I launch into the three questions that I pretty much ask every guest is around social activism and meditation, because you do link the two in a very real way. I am so appreciative of this. I feel like it has been a very important aspect of the last several years of my existence as a yoga teacher, watching people like Carrie Kelly, yourself, uh, Sean Korn, rising into this this synergy between meditation and yoga and the world of social activism. And I would love to just hear a little bit about what moved you to create this arm of your work and just to thank you for it, really. Hmm. Thank you, Elena. Yeah, there's so many people out there doing doing amazing work. And I think here's the deal. It's I think what happened for many of us, and I'll, I can speak for what happened to me, is I know that, so in the past, I'll be totally honest with you guys, like I was kind of like a backseat activist. Like I would go to protests every once in a while if it was like a big thing, you know, I would lightly be engaged, but I would pride myself in not watching the news because it's too negative and, and really just letting other people take the lead. And I think so many of us, you know, were that way. And, and it was easy to be that way in my kind of like, you know, I was in my Santa Monica Lululemon bubble, you know, and it was, it was fantastic. And, and I love Lululemon and everything is, is great there, you know. Um, and, and after the last election in 2016, I and I think many people woke up and started asking, okay, what do I do? I have too much agency, I have too much power, I have too much knowledge and too many skills to be sitting in the backseat and not using this. And my big question in that moment, and I think the question many of us were asking as we were watching the blatant disregard for black lives and the pain of our immigrant brothers and sisters and watching the different things happening to our earth and our oceans and the environment and literally the world on fire, you know, so many of us are asking, what do we do? And so I was deep in this question, what do I do? And for some people, it is organizing and, and planning protests and planning marching and fighting and, and doing that work. And I'm grateful for that. But that did not have any, that didn't use my talents and my gifts and my skills as a being. And so when I was asking this question, what do I do? It really became clear to me that what I could do was to be a light for all the people out there in the world who want to get involved in this work and in this movement but don't know how. What I could do was show up and teach a practice that has quite frankly changed my entire life. And I grew up like many of the people that are dealing with struggles in this world and helped teach that to people who were underserved. And this was my unique way of being in the world and being of service. And so you know what I guide people through in the book when it's about social justice and activism, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be, that I'm trying to get you to be out there like, you know, holding signs and walking and protesting and marching. It's about looking at what you, in your authentic way, with the agency that you have, with the skills and talents and interests and causes that you care about most, what can you do? Because I think right now, and one thing we can all agree upon, Elena, is that meditation and mindfulness and these practices are about awareness, right? And and right now, awareness is calling us to get our asses up off of our meditation cushions and take action. Action in our lives 
action in our communities, action for one another, and action for the planet. That's really what inspired me to even write this book, and that's what inspired me to want to do this do this work. I'm going to get people to vote. Yes, yes. That's going to be my action. I'm going to make sure that people get out and vote. Yeah, it's so important, especially on the hills of such an, a historic election this year. You know, we have to, especially our spiritual, mindful community. You know, I, I was following very closely a lot of what Marianne Williamson was talking about, and I think the concept behind her words were just so beautiful of just, look, we as a community, we have values and we have things that we believe in and we've turned away many of us from politics, me included, you know, oh, I don't want to get involved in that. But like, look what happens in every part of the world that we, the conscious people, the woke people, the spiritual people, look what happens when we apply our knowledge and our agency and our power to things. There is real change that happens. And so this is the time for us to to engage and bring love and infuse love and get involved. And I think we'll start to see the world that we all desire. I think that's true, too. I really appreciate your work. Mm, thank you. Yeah, no, you're welcome. I, I'm so glad that we were able to get this in such a timely fashion. The three questions that I ask almost every guest. The first is what in your own personal space or in the space around you needs in your estimation, needs healing right now? Mm, Okay, so if I'll be really real with you, the thing in my life that needs the most, most, most healing is my limiting beliefs that I have sometimes around money for myself. That's, um, you know, a big one. I remember, you know, growing up up the way that I did, very paycheck. I mean, we weren't poor, but like if somebody was missing a paycheck, it was going to be a big problem, you know? And I remember when I was a kid, I remember saying like, I just want to make six figures. Like, I just want to make, I just want to make a hundred thousand dollars. And in my head as a kid, like that was like, like nobody in my family made a hundred thousand dollars, you know, even close to that. It's like this big dream. And it's interesting because I started making that gratefully, you know, many years ago. And I've been stuck at this cap. And it's been an interesting battle because it seems if no matter if I get busier or if I get, you know, am I doing more work, if I'm having a book or an album or whatever, I get stuck in this range. And I and it's one of the things that I am very actively and consciously this year looking at my relationship to money, looking at mm-hmm. the energy that I put towards money, look at looking at the stories that I tell and where it all comes from. And not just so that I can make more money for the sake of making money. I don't really care about that, but to to really be able to serve fully. And, and, you know, Elena, we were talking earlier about being philanthropic and doing good in the world. I, I really want to be able to do that at the greatest level. And so I'm looking at my money story so that I can help give back in the deepest way possible. You know, when I really started to make money was when I started to give a certain percentage of it, but like as a matter of fact. Mm. So I started with 10% giving and then basically somewhere between 15 and 20 now, it's around 18%, just goes immediately out of my paycheck into the bank for slash safekeeping and investing. That's amazing. So almost, yeah, almost 30% is gone. And the minute I started to do that, and it was highly uncomfortable at first, Yeah, was the minute it my whole structural, foundational, financial situation began to shift. So for whatever that's worth... <laughs> Mm. consider 
Yes, tithe tied to something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a church or something like that. But I can no, I need to try anything, that. You know, anything. I did that years ago, years ago. And you know what I'm thinking? This is crazy. I'm having an aha, an Oprah style aha moment right now. The year that I first broke a hundred thousand dollars, which was like my goal, you know, back then, was mm-hmm. was the year that I had an automated thing going out of my account. I was doing life coaching that year. And the woman was saying the law of receiving has to do with the law of giving. And I was giving 10% that whole year. And that was a year that I broke that. So I need to up-level that and do it again. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) So the second question is, what's your favorite view? And it doesn't have to be the sort of typical, you know, from the top of Runyon Canyon or something. It can be anything from inside, from outside. Oh, oh, I already know what my favorite view is. So Go. my favorite view ever is at a place called Esalen in Big Sur. Mm. That's a spiritual retreat center mm. in, in California. And there is this one spot. I go to Esalen all the time. It's literally my favorite place on the planet. I go at least once a year. And I wrote my most of my book there. I wrote the proposal there. And there's this natural hot spring on the edge of a cliff, looking over the Pacific Ocean, this one, they have like a bunch of them there, but there's this one that I like to sit in and I look off into the distance and it's, I sit there and I go, I am so fucking grateful. Like I cannot believe I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to sit here and to see this view and it never once in 10 years of going there, it's never once gotten old. And so that's my favorite view. Beautiful. And then the last question is, what does prayer mean to you? And we have to go to Esalen together someday. Yes, yes, yes. You said, what does prayer mean? Prayer? Yeah. What does prayer mean to you? Prayer is when you talk to God and meditation is when you listen to God talking back to you. Mm. And I really believe that prayer and meditation go together hand in hand. We spend so much time talking and asking, what do I do? Show me the way, but very little time listening. And so for me, prayer is just part of the glue. It's an essential piece of my life. I feel like I'm praying all day. And for me, the the biggest thing that I can do when I pray is to be in gratitude. And I, I try my absolute best to do that all the time as a consistent practice and prayer to just be grateful and thankful very specifically for the things that are happening in my life, no matter what they are. And, and also pray and ask for what I need. And I think what the reason that's so empower, empowering to me is, uh, you know, it inspires me to remember and to always know that I'm not doing it all alone and I don't have to do it all alone. I can anchor into something greater than me and there's a force at work greater than me that has a bigger vision for my life than I could have ever thought was possible. And when I surrender to that, that's when all the magic happens. Thank you so much for that answer. Justin, you touched my heart with your words and I love you so greatly right now. Thank you. Thank you. So I would love to share with my listener where we can get the book and the charitable component that this book brings with it. You are doing a beautiful thing for the kids with regards to this book, and I want to hear about it. Uh, Yes, thank you so much, Elena. So you can get the book really anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere, or you can go to staywokegiveback.com. The title of the book is Stay Woke, A Meditation Guide for the Rest of Us. But what I really care about more than anything is this charitable cause that we're doing with my publisher's foundation, 
We're going to 10 of the most impacted cities in the United States, places like Flint, Michigan, and Atlanta, and Chicago, and Oakland. And we're going to high schools, and we're going to colleges, and we're giving the book with a free big TED Talk style event to thousands, tens of thousands of kids across the country and teaching them all how to meditate. And really the mission here is to give these kids access when they're, you know, I want you to imagine some of these kids are in a position where, you know, all they're seeing in the news is things that are not possible for them. And they're, they're seeing the destitution and, and dealing with so much struggle in their lives. And our mission is to give them access to a source and a resource that's endless and infinite. And that's their own power and their own potential and their own possibility. And so if you want to help us give back, we're trying to get this to as many schools as possible around the country. It only costs $8 per child to give back and help this bring this to more schools. So you can go to staywokegiveback.org and donate any amount. It's totally tax deductible. It takes two seconds. It's like a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe kind of thing. And uh, help us bring mindfulness to the kids who need us most. So beautiful. Justin, I am just so honored to be your friend. I'm so proud to have seen you walk this far down the road in your studies and you. in your practice and in your teaching. I'm just so thankful on behalf of all of us that you have brought your voice to this world because it really does matter. And I want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much, Elena. Love you. Love you too. <laughs> Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.